When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in partnership with the New Books Network. In this podcast, you interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. How do we talk about China? It's a question every analyst, academic, policymaker, and reporter probably needs to ask themselves. Is China, as some hawks claim, an existential threat to the world order? Is it on the verge of aggressively taking the number one spot? Or is it on the verge of collapse? Is it a dangerous military threat? Or is it, as some Chinese commentators claim, an entirely benevolent power? Navigating an increasingly black and white conversation is Carrie Brown, leading China academic and author of China Incorporated, The Politics of a World Where China is Number One. Carrie Brown is professor of Chinese studies and director of the Lao Chai Institute at King's College London. He is an associate of the ASIS program at Chatham House London and adjunct of the Australian New Zealand School of Government in Melbourne and the co-editor of the Journal of Current Chinese Affairs, run by the German Institute for Global Affairs in Hamburg. From 98 to 2005, he worked at the British Foreign and Commonwealth Office as first secretary at the British Embassy in Beijing and then as head of the Indonesia-Philippine East Timor section. He is the author of almost 20 books on modern Chinese politics. Today, Carrie and I talk about China's politics and discuss what, if anything, lies at the foundation of some of the common descriptions about China. So, Carrie, thank you so much for for coming on the show today to talk about your your latest book, China Incorporated. Um, you know, I in reading your book, it's it seems to be motivated by um, a particular, let's say, frustration in the way that um, we talk about China now. Um, particularly, particularly how people in the quote unquote West talk about China and how that conversation has become significantly constrained. Um, what do you think is missing in the discourse about um, the West's relations with China? Well, a lot of the time, what's missing is any admission that we're in a very complicated situation. Policymakers, publicly at least in America and Europe, speak like this is an either or situation, it's binary. Either China does what we want it to, or we have to take tough action. And it kind of makes this strange situation of giving people the illusion that there are choices when often there aren't choices. In fact, China will be there, whether people like it or not. The strong likelihood it will continue to be as difficult a partner as it is today and that we have to therefore adapt and change our policies to become more nuanced and more complicated because if we take this binary position, we're going to be either ineffective or end up with a total disaster. Um, you know, I mean, speaking of speaking of disaster, um, you know, hawks, China hawks, I think, are increasingly portraying the country as an existential threat, um, which I think many people do do see as an exaggeration. Um, but again, Hawks kind of portray China as a threat to the West's values, a threat to the international system, and thus requires a response in kind. 
But in your view, kind of what's a more realistic way to talk about China and its rise? Well, the policymaking community is just on the issue of who thinks China is an existential threat. As you rightly say, the vast majority of people, I don't think, have that view. The vast majority of people either don't think about China much at all in the outside world. They think about a lot of other things or they know that it's complicated and they probably have a more complex understanding than many of the people who present themselves as so-called you know, China uh, international experts. I, I mean, not people experts on China, but people who talk about China's international role uh, outside of China. So people in think tanks and you know, lobby groups. And you know, these people have been extremely influential in creating and crafting, I think, a very unrepresentative policy which is not really what I think government officials and many politicians actually believe. I think most of them know it's complicated. They would agree with what I've just sort of explained. And therefore, you know, one of the issues is that we have to address that problem in ourselves as Europeans and Americans and in other places. We have to kind of have a long, hard think about what it is that we want and how we can be realistic and try and achieve that with a partner that is not easy to influence. And it seems to me, you know, that there needs to be a lot of inquiry about how it is that a very small group of very noisy, extremely, um, you know, kind of pushy lobby groups, pressure groups, um, you know, with a very strong view on China as a particular thing, how we as people who also are involved in this debate need to push back against that. Because I think a lot of their objectives and their program is not particularly representative of what the outside world wants and is not effective. And that's true in lots of policy areas. The you know extraordinary power of these very small but well kind of you know resourced and well um you know network groups to really, really push not particularly representative policy about China. So I think that's the first thing. Um, and I think, you know, kind of this book is, in a sense, as kind of um, uncomplicated a statement as I could make about a complicated situation and what might be um, ways of trying to remedy that and to think about things in a slightly different way. You know, it's it's it, your your answer there kind of reminded me of of something. Um, I was listening to some to some actual China experts from from a think tank, and I I won't name names, but there was definitely some uh, half joking grumbling about uh, what they called part time experts on China. You know how everyone is suddenly <laughs> has things to say about China, despite not having been there, despite not having studied it to the extent that they have, and and how ac academics like you have, um, I mean, but it does seem like kind of that that, that China is both referred to um, all the time, but also not with a great amount of depth. Um, there are a lot of assertions and beliefs. I think that that you kind of get into in your book that if you poke a little bit deeper, may not have a lot of evidence behind, or there are, there are a lot more assumptions behind them um, than than facts. Yeah, I mean, I think I sort of argue in the book that, you know, this idea of the hidden hand, Beijing's mysterious hidden hand, its influence, the idea that it's, you know, kind of able to uh, promote its interests, the particularly the Communist Party of China and the United Front and its various agents, 
They have infiltrated universities in the West. They have got into business groups, all of this. I mean, first of all, I find that deeply patronizing because business people, academic colleagues, they're not idiots. They're extremely good at working out what they want and they are uh, discriminating. And, you know, maybe there are some that uh, kind of maybe haven't thought it through. But I think most, um, they, they know what the situation is and they have a, I think a kind of very variated, variegated view. Um, but I think also um, it's very flattering to Beijing. I mean, we have uh, credited Beijing with this massive amount of influence and psychological war power, which I don't think it really um, has. I mean, there's some areas where it's definitely got an interest to try and get what it wants, technological issues and stuff like that. But maybe not even that area as intense as it once was. Now it's producing its own technology. But, you know, these areas we know and our security services should know what we are going to have to protect, need to protect. But the idea that, you know, Confucius Institutes and things like this are going to promote, uh, you know, kind of a lot of change on Western audiences part to ch towards China, I find a fairy tale. I mean, I find it a fairy tale firstly because it's very hard to bridge the cultural gap between China's message and Western audiences. I mean, it's not easy. So, I mean, if they're influencing, they're starting from a very, very difficult place, the Chinese government. Um, that's the first issue. And the second, I find it hard to believe, um, is because I, I, I mean, you can understand, you can seek to understand a place. It doesn't mean that you're validating it. I mean, just the, the fact that doctors have to be experts sometimes in particular diseases doesn't mean that they like on, or support the diseases. And I'm not saying that, you know, international relations is about looking at foreign affairs as a kind of disease, but it's looking at problems. It's looking at issues that are complicated without saying that's a good thing. It's just trying to be empirical and realistic. And I find the discourse at the moment around China in Britain, probably in America, probably in elsewhere in the world, very strange because it seems it's a crime to know about this place. You know, for these very zealous China hawks uh, who've invested so much in a particular image of China and a problem of China and a proprietization of China, um, even knowing this place, engaging in this place, visiting this place, is a problem. So to be knowledgeable is to be a problem. That's a crazy situation to end up in. So let's start let's start talking about China and some of the I think some of the puzzles you know in in your book, particularly when it comes to Chinese power. Um and let's start maybe with the hard power discussion. Um you know what what makes China's hard power such a difficult thing to talk about and to analyze? Um as you note it's clearly a is clearly a strong country militarily, but it's the way we kind of think about it is is maybe different than we might have done for other countries. Sorry, I'm just done. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's difficult because not because of what China does, but because it's a power that often doesn't do things. I mean, that's the weird thing that it's a kind of passive power. It hasn't, as I say in the book, it hasn't really had any combat experience internationally since 1979 and not on a major scale since the Korea War in the 1950s. Um, it's got a huge military, therefore, that it doesn't really use except for little clashes. And, yeah, I mean, it could use it tomorrow, maybe, on Taiwan or something. But as yet, as of today, it, it hasn't. 
it's also a power that is resistant to explaining itself in an easy or straightforward way. I, I mean, the Belt and Road Initiative, for instance, is China's signature foreign policy of the last 10 years. And many people still don't really know what the Belt and Road is about. And I think also because China is an actor with, in many ways, a weird combination of a very uniform foreign policy, you know, the five principles of peaceful coexistence that it had since the mid-50s. And it seems sort of quite regulated, um, and it applies to everyone, wherever you are, this is what you're going to get from China. But on the other hand, it's a power that is quite malleable and kind of um, mutable. And when it, it acts in different places, it's a different thing. I mean, China in Africa is a different kind of thing to China in Europe. And China in America is a very different thing to China in Japan, for instance, and its influence and relationship with Japan. So these are two very complicated things to try and put together. So this passivity and contradictory nature, I think, means China is not uh, an easy power to understand, on top of which it's not a great communicator. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, and there are big cultural differences. So we really have a very different situation than, for instance, the Cold War of the USSR, where there were similarities, at least culturally. And we were dealing with a power which had enough um, accessibility for us to say, OK, we kind of know what we're dealing with now. With China, I don't think we really can do that very easily. Um, and then you, so we've talked about hard power. There's also soft power, and 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 we have kind of mentioned the, the some of the scrutiny around the Confucian Institutes and things like that on on college campuses. Um, but China doesn't seem to have to be very good at soft power, um, which has been a long running observation. Um, again, kind of what's the What's the difficulty in talking about and understanding China's soft power or perhaps the, the lack of it? Well, I think 15 years ago in the period of Hu Jintao in the mm -hmm. early 2000s uh, and the Olympics in 2008, there was a phase when China really did feel quite enthusiastic about this idea of soft power. But I think since then it's waned. And mm -hmm. that's partly because I think China understands well, you need a lot of common knowledge to really be able to embrace another culture. And a lot of people outside of China don't have that knowledge. So you kind of got to do basic things before you can even start a soft, pro soft power program. But I also think that it's become much more contentious now. Um, as China's economy has grown and its global prominence has increased and the Xi Jinping leadership is much more nationalistic. I mean, there's lots of complicated reasons for that. But we ended up in a situation where, uh, you know, kind of the messenger um, for soft power is often the Chinese state and people outside of China don't really embrace or like this particularly. So it's not so much the message. That's that's one issue, but it's the messenger that's often the problem. If you put those together, you can see that a soft power program from China or a campaign of any sort is going to be extremely hard to prosecute. So. You've already kind of mentioned um, kind of a shift in China's stance, um, which I think everyone ties to the the rise of um, President Xi Jinping. Um, you know, what are the indications? Like, what are the indicators of of that change stance, um, whether domestically or internationally, when it comes to um, Chinese politics? Well, it depends on where you stand. Mm. If you're in the Asia Pacific region. I mean, China is a much more uh, visible 
trading and investment partner and also a military player. I mean, it's got a huge navy. Uh, so you do have to factor in all of these new things, despite the fact that your security interests may well not be with China. They may well be with the US and its alliance system, uh, like Malaysia, Philippines, places like that. So if you're in Europe, Africa, uh, America, it's it's all very, very different, the way you have to calculate and think through what sense you make mm -hmm. of China's new position. I, I mean, I think that it's partly... Um, an accident and partly by design. So it's an accident because China didn't, I think, intend to grow as quickly as it has in the last 20 plus years after entry to the World Trade Organization. Um, but also, I think it's because the outside world has gone through, particularly America and Europe, a pretty torrid time. The great financial crisis in 2008 and then multiple political issues the election of uh, Donald Trump in the United States, which whatever people's individual views was was a surprise. Uh, and then, you know, kind of issues in Europe seem to be perpetually fighting different kinds of crises. So I think China has looked at that and thought, wow, these guys that we used to really look up to and seem to have some solutions, you know, even if it was just economically, they don't really seem to know what they're doing. So I think mm. China's lost a lot of its interest or confidence in the outside world. And I think the combination of its own rising capacity, but also declining confidence in, uh, you know, the international situation has made it this very prickly defensive, uh, you know, very risk averse kind of power it is today where almost everything seems to be centralized and streamlined. And, you know, of course, in a time of crisis, that might seem the right thing. But I think today we're also seeing that it's a problem because so many decisions and issues are in the hands of a very small group of people in China. Mm. Um, so in 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 reading your book, I was struck by by a very illuminating, I think, a very important question, um, which is uh, was it? said it's it, it, it's the inverse of the what does China want question. Um, which is what does the world, or you could even say just the U.S., want from China? Um, as in, what does the U.S. want China to be in the international system? Um, and I guess the the second order question from that is: Is that role ever going to be something that China could accept? Well, the interesting thing about asking what the world wants is, as a hypothetical exercise, if China were to magically become a democracy in the next year and everything worked which which <laughs> i think is next to impossible but you know say that happened it was a magic magic sort of solution i still think it wouldn't be easy china's fundamentally culturally um different from america and its allies i mean or america and its european allies in any case and its rise economically even without the political differences it has, would still be challenging because like Japan in the 1980s, when it was rising to be the second and then maybe even the first um, major um, economy in the world, there was this sort of cultural issue, you know, that it wasn't a European culture by background. There were uh, differences in worldview that were underneath the assimilation by Japan of cultural uh, you know, kind of norms from the outside world. It wasn't really embraced as a sort of 
um, a, a, a real partner that the West could feel comfortable with. And I think it's the same issue with China. The problem uh, with China's rise has been partly its political difference. And there the issues are real. I mean, I accept that, you know, one party Leninist state is not easy to deal with. OK, that's one issue. But there's also these murkier issues of cultural frictions and lack of knowledge, lack of real trust, because Westerners being the dominant economies and the dominant geopolitical players, at least till now, I don't think that there's a, a, a sense of ease about a world in which players like China and India and you know other major emerging uh, non-Western powers are going to kind of really have more and more of a, a a role and an influence in geopolitics. I mean, that's going to need a lot of cultural understanding, a very different, a more flexible view from the West. And I, I mean, it's not been something the West has been particularly good at in its period of dominance. But I think it's got to really think hard about what does the world look like where there are different players, not just politically, but culturally. And we're going to have to deal with them, whether we like them or not. This is a very different situation from even 30 or 40 years ago. And one of the things about, you know, this language of the Cold War and, you know, the West winning in the Cold War against the USSR I don't think that the situation we're in is one where there is going to be a winner or a loser. I think mm. that it's going to be a situation where it's about management, uh, new status quo, balance. There'll be no winners and losers. There'll no, you know, there won't be any nice, easy things like that. There's going to be a perpetual palette of different kinds of relationships and different sorts of dominances. And sometimes it'll be the West and sometimes it'll be, you know, China and sometimes it'll be India. It's going to be complicated. That's not something I think we have dealt with before in such intensity and in such an epic scale. Right. So, I mean, your your book, I mean, it, it tackles a lot of Western views and, and arguments about China um, and kind of demythologizes a lot of them. Um, but are there any Chinese attitudes about China that that need similar uh, demythologizing? Um, maybe to phrase the question a little bit differently. I mean, I think we always talk about um, American exceptionalism. Um, is there a Chinese version of that? Is there kind of a Chinese exceptionalism that also uh, distorts how how China inter how China and Chinese diplomats and Chinese leaders interact with the with the rest of the world? No, that's a great question. Of course, there are lots of things that China is going to have to do differently. I mean, this isn't a one-way street. I, I, I mean, the book is mm. by a Westerner to a predominantly Western audience. And so that's why I really felt more comfort in talking about how the West needs to behave. Mm. But I mean, for sure, you're right. China um, is also going to have to act in a different way. Um, its diplomacy recently has been very poor. Its lack of transparency unsettles people. It seems to want the status of a great power, but it doesn't want any responsibility. And alas, for its own self-interest, it's going to have to have responsibility in places from the Middle East to Latin America to, for instance, Russia. I mean, if it's creating a new kind of diplomacy, it's got to get people playing the rules of that diplomacy pretty soon and understanding the rules because 
you can't really do these sorts of collective things without having some sort of common understanding. And China at the moment just uses rhetoric about win-win. You know, these are um, mm-hmm. slogans, but they're not really going to help people navigate a, a very sort of difficult period. And I think finally, um, China is going to have to uh, accept that it is going to be the target, as America has been, of um, much uh, you know criticism. Um, it's going to be prominent. It can't keep on pretending it's just a little mouse sitting in the corner. It's got to really have to live in a world where it's going to have to have a thicker skin. Um, so this is quite a long list of things that China's going to have to do differently. And at the moment, uh, classically, where are we in September 2023? Uh, we've got a you know defense minister in China that seems to have totally disappeared. We've just had a foreign minister in China that went ill, and then he was replaced very quickly with no explanation. We've got Xi Jinping not attending the G20 for whatever reason, no one knows. And we've got a sense that China is just very opaque, not really saying what's going on. People are becoming nervous. Well, in the past, in the Maoist period, China wasn't as important ge- uh, geopolitically and economically. Uh, you know, you could have these strange periods when no one knew what was going on. But today, I mean, it's extremely damaging. Mm. China's messaging has been very poor. Its diplomacy is getting clunkier and clunkier. Obviously, there are issues. It's no good being the world's second biggest economy and behaving like you're just a middle-ranking power. It's got to be different now. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you, you finished the book kind of early 2022, but the, the news never stops, unfortunately. <laughs> Um, So I wondered if you might be willing to apply some of your framing, the way you frame these conversations about Chinese politics and the way the rest of the world views and talks and deals with China to 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 some of the contemporary issues that have arisen um, since early 2022. I've got two in mind. So let's maybe go with the first one. Um, Specifically, how do you kind of apply your framing of China to the conversation about, I'm going to use the term the tech war, you know, all of these new chip controls from last October, discussions about banning TikTok, um, but kind of this this sudden, um, I guess, the, the, the expansion of strategic competition to um, the realm of technology, particularly kind of in the last year. Um, how do you kind of see that conversation in light of the, your kind of framework um, on how to talk about China? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting area. I guess one has to be realistic. And there's a question about, well, isn't it too late to do all this stuff? If we wanted to be effective, these should have been in place, these sanctions and restrictions, a long time ago. We had the news this year that Huawei has come out with some new technology that it didn't have before and chips. Um, yeah, I mean, China is doing surprising things and doing an enormous amount of research, and who knows where that might lead. Uh, it's probably not going to be able to create the high-tech uh, microchips that are created, for instance, on Taiwan, but it's doing things that have surprised people, and we should therefore be prepared for surprises. So in that context, um, I would say that the uh, a policy approach that's being used at the moment is probably um, five to ten years too late. However, if there is distrust and if there is unease, for sure, 
you need to have boundaries and restrictions. I mean, I, I, despite the fact that I'm for engagement with China, I also understand this is not a very um, transparent situation we're in. And if you're not comfortable, you need boundaries. Um, what I am saying in the book, which applies to this sort of situation, is you need to be clear-sighted about the costs of not engaging. So the costs of not engaging today with China as a technology partner are, first of all, the costs of not being able to operate in the Chinese market, which, okay, you may be able to bear those, but it's a significant cost. And as Apple has just learnt, uh, you know, because of restrictions on Apple in China now, because of political issues. But secondly, the opportunity cost from China's creation of what I've just referred to, new technologies. Those are potentially significant costs. So my fundamental point in the book, and it applies to any issue, including this, is you can disengage and disassociate from China. That's fine. But there's no point in setting out this as some wonderful, miraculous kind of zero-sum thing where you walk away and there's no costs. There will always be costs, and the costs are increasingly um, heavy. You know, so politicians who warts around the world saying, we just don't deal with China, we get rid of it, it's an existential threat, are talking a fairy tale because you can definitely walk away from China if you want, but then you're going to walk away from a country that's central to a lot of economic issues, a country whose collapse will cause massive problems for you, whether you like it or not, wherever you are, and a country who is... Uh, you know, kind of increasingly important to solve global issues like global warming. So, yeah, disengage, but you have to be honest about the costs and the opportunity costs of not talking to a partner that might be very important hmm. in areas that matter to you. One more contemporary, I guess, news trend. Um, this one, I guess, a lot more internal to China. Um, I mean, uh, China's economy, I think, looks more shaky than it did. A year and a half ago, um, I think there's a lot of doom and gloom in the reporting right now, which is probably overblown. But but COVID zero was ended up being very disruptive last year. The recovery from COVID zero has been stumbling. Um, the reports now people coming out and saying China may never be number one. It may never overtake the U.S. and you know whatever. Let 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 the economists figure that out. But but China's economy looks a lot less well put together than, than it might have done kind of 18 months ago. Um, it kind of how do you see, how do you see, if it's true that China's economy really is kind of moderating, um, how does that affect kind of your view of China's power and its kind of position in the world order? So not not a collapse, but but a moderation. Um, how does that kind of play out in in the international system? Yeah, I mean, I think a um, deterioration of the Chinese economy is again a very mixed thing. I mean, people can celebrate this and say, ah, oh, this is really making China more moderate as a global power and putting it in its box. But I mean, it's already having a knock-on effect on you know different economic indicators elsewhere. Um so you know, the um weakening of the Chinese economy is uh it, it kind of concerning and worrying. I mean the it's a problem. You know, I mean, China um, is a problem if it's stable and strong. Yeah, it's an even bigger problem if it's unstable and falling apart. Now, we're not remotely close to it being like that. But the con 
current situation is um, is concerning. And I think it's also concerning that there's little real um, transparency from the Chinese government on what's happening. This is where actually it's crucial to have engagement for our own self-interest, because the outside world really needs to know what on earth is going on in China at the moment. And unfortunately, there are very few journalists there now. There are very mm. few people able to visit. I think this year there were only, I think, 60,000 visitors from the outside world into China. I mean, in 2019, before the pandemic, over the same period, it was something like three and a half million. Um, yeah, this is really an awful situation. And actually, it's in no one's interest for there to be this lack of knowledge and information. Um, it's not in China's interest. It's not in the outside world's interest. But it's very hard to know how to remedy this when there are the levels of distress, uh, distrust and you know, kind of disagreement and contentiousness as there are at the moment. I mean, the only positive thing is that America has sent, I think, four delegations, you know, high-level delegations to China, including the Secretary of State Blinken and Janet Yellen from the Treasury. Um, in uh, the last six months, Britain's Foreign Secretary James Cleverley's just been, uh, the French President Macron went, um, the German Chancellor. I, I mean, you know, there's been visits to China. The ominous thing is there's been very few visits by China the other way. Mm -hmm. uh, Xi Jinping has been to the Middle East. He's been to, you know, BRICS in South Africa, but not really that active. Um, so this is not a good situation. And it compounds a bad situation, which is the economic, uh, you know, the concerning economic indi indicators in China at the moment. They look bad, but we don't know how bad they are. You know, one one more question about China. Um, and, you know, as as news continues to break, as kind of more um, as more stories about China continue to kind of be, be reported out, um, I guess in brief, kind of what questions should people be asking themselves when it comes to uh, Chinese politics and Chinese power. Um, like, like just just what are some brief questions that that readers of the news, readers of stories about China should be asking themselves as they as they try to understand what's going on in this part of the world? Well, I think the basic premise is that China is a is a rational player. I mean, it's not an irrational power. And I think it's an, it's a rational player because it, needs stability and predictability. It doesn't like unpredictability. It doesn't like to kind of um, have things that it's not able to depend on. So, so the Trump presidency, which because it was unpredictable, was not something that China particularly liked. I mean, so I think bearing that in mind, we always be, have to be asking, okay, you know, why is this very rational, predictable sort of loving system acting in the way that it's acting at the moment, you know, and also what is it about China's relations with the outside world um, that um, would would help China and why, therefore, is it sometimes doing things that seem to antagonize those relations? So one would assume, therefore, that there are domestic reasons and we have to kind of try and think through what they might be. The second thing I think that's crucial is never to make this assumption that China is some uniform actor. I mean, there is one man that everyone thinks about and looks at, Xi Jinping, and it all seems to be a story about him. But behind him, of course, it's the Communist Party and the complex different parts of the party. And we always have to remember that that is the emperor of contemporary China, not Xi. 
and never to lose sight of that and that organization's desire you know to kind of just be eternal in a way and have a um, you know whatever a thousand year rule or, or that kind of thing so those sorts of balancing you know always try and think of china as a rational player but also uh, to remember that it's not a kind of straightforward story and to try and keep your eye on different sorts of things not just the more dramatic things i think that's pretty important now that's the whole business of having a more complicated view and not just making this assumption that china is a single message and a single entity acting in a single way. Well, I think that's a great place to end our conversation with Kerry Brown, author of China Incorporated, The Politics of a World Where China is Number One. Um, uh, Kerry, I, I actually have two final questions for you, um, which are, where can people find your work, all of your work, not just this book? And number two, what's next for you? What do you think the next project might be? So on the first one, my website, www kerry-brown.co.uk has everything that I've pretty much everything I've written um, including the books articles academic articles it's all on there and secondly on the currently I've just finished a history of Britain's relations with China since 1570 that will come out with Yale University Press uh, next year and then I am working at the moment on a book on Taiwan for Penguin Viking which mm. will also come out um, later next year well I'd love to hear more about it when the time comes you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R.I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianViewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find many more author interviews at the New Books Network and NewBooksNetwork.com. We're on all of, your, um, all of your podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with friends to support us interviewing those running in, around, and about Asia. Stay tuned for more news and who's coming up on the show. But before then... Thank you so much, Carrie, for coming on the show today. Thank you very much.